Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. It's the 16th century, and the Ottoman Empire has just defeated the Mamluk Sultanate. It's conquered Damascus and Cairo, important centers of Arab learning and culture. But how did these two groups, Arabs and Rumis, a term used to refer to those living in Anatolia, interact? How did Arabs deal with these powerful upstarts? And how did Rumis try to work with their learned, yet defeated, subjects? Dr. Helen Pfeiffer studies one venue where Arabs and Rumis in the Ottoman Empire interacted, learned from each other, and jockeyed for status the Salon. Empire of Salons, Conquest and Community in Early Modern Ottoman Lands, published by Princeton University Press earlier this year, looks at how gatherings of gentlemen helped to build Ottoman culture. Dr. Helen Pfeiffer is the inaugural university lecturer in early Ottoman history at the University of Cambridge and a fellow of Christ's College. She has an interest in understanding the empire within larger Islamic, European, and global contexts. Her research focuses on issues of empire, cultural exchange, and Islamic devotional practice in the 16th and 17th centuries. Today, Helen and I talk about the Ottoman Empire, the differences between the Arab and Ruby communities, and what exactly people did in the Salon. So, Helen, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I maybe want to start by setting the historical scene. You know, what period of history are we talking about um, when it comes to empire of Salons? Yeah, so first of all, um, uh, thanks very much for having me on the show. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's lovely to be here and and, and share um, some stories from, from the book. Um, so yeah, I mean, this the story that I tell starts in the late 15th century. Um, and the Ottomans basically rule over what is today's uh, Turkey and large parts of um, southeastern Europe. So in many ways, the Ottoman Empire, if we can call it an empire in that period, because it's more of a regional player, is really as much, I think, a European one as an Islamic one. And in fact, it has a majority Christian population in this period still. So, so that's so much for the Ottomans. Then south of the Ottomans, we have the Mamluks. Um, and the Mamluks uh, rule from Cairo over um, what is today's Syria, uh, Jordan, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, Egypt, and large parts of the Arabian Peninsula. And basically, the story starts when these two empires um, uh, start sort of hitting up against one another um, more and more in the 15th century. And the Ottomans are basically becoming more and more powerful uh, politically and militarily. And they're sort of starting to eat, chip away at at Mamluk um, uh, territory. But what's interesting about this relationship is that culturally, even though the Mamluks are maybe not as dominant politically and militarily, they still play an outsized role culturally within the Islamic ecumen. So they rule over many of the sort of centers of late medieval um, Islamic uh, piety and culture. Um, We can think of Cairo, of course, Damascus, Jerusalem, Mecca and Medina, crucially. Um, and so this is the sort of starting point of the book, which documents then the aftermath of the Ottoman conquest of, of, of the Mamluk uh, Sultanate or the Mamluk Empire. So this is, I think, a really interesting starting point and sort of the, I guess, the puzzle or the conundrum that I was hoping to, to solve in, in writing this book, which is 
how does this interaction function um, when you have uh, the Ottomans who are politically, militarily dominant, uh, suddenly ruling over a group of, of people who are in the eyes of many contemporaries, maybe culturally or, or religiously, um, have, a, have a certain, uh, a, a, let's say, an, an outsized prestige? How does, how does that interaction take place? So that's really the starting point of the book. You know, I, and, and I want to get into kind of some of the tools that were used, but maybe just I want to ask in broad terms, what, how different were these two societies? How different were these two cultures? I mean, obviously there was the, there was a sense of kind of um, intellectual eliteness, I would say, that kind of came in Arab society and being part of these great centers of culture and knowledge like, um, like Damascus, like Cairo. Um, but I guess kind of what were the differences between Ottoman slash Turkish culture and Arab culture? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 interesting. I mean, I would say generally, yes, absolutely. The the two societies have a huge number of similarities. I mean, in both empires, the ruling classes were um, uh, Muslim for the most part, and so that obviously brings with it a, a certain set of of shared texts. Um, obviously, the Quran and the Hadiths. Um, the sort of stories of the Prophet Muhammad, but also all of the, or a lot of the literature, let's say, that sort of built on and, and interpreted those, those key uh, religious scriptures. They also, as I, as I point out in the, in the first chapter of the book, they also have actually similar cultures of sociability. So we do have a, a culture of gentlemanly salons that is broadly shared in both the Mamluk and the um, and, and um, Ottoman empires, and in fact across the Islamic world more broadly, already before the conquest. So there are similar expectations for conversation and for etiquette, sort of what was talked about and and how gentlemen were, were supposed to comport themselves. And I think in some ways this is why maybe this, you know, the encounter or, or let's say the interaction between these two groups hasn't been really seen as a cultural encounter in that sense. Um, uh, in the works of, of, of very many, many scholars. So whereas we have a huge literature on, say, interaction between Christians and Muslims in the Mediterranean, there's much less about, about these, this, this interaction between, let's say, Turkish speakers and Arabic speakers. And I think that's because, in part, because of a fundamental assumption, okay, they were all Muslims, so that, you know, there's not really, there's not really that much encountering uh, to be done. But of course... There were very serious um, differences, and I think differences that maybe matter, especially in um, in the salon. So, in the Ottoman Empire, um, Turkish was the main spoken language within the imperial elite. So, the imperial elite was a multi-ethnic. That's why I don't talk about Turks. I talk about Rumis, which which means Romans, which is the term that. Um, that was used by contemporaries um, to refer to, let's say, um, the sort of ur- urban, urbane um, Ottoman elite. Um, uh, but nonetheless, it was it was a multi-ethnic elite. But Turkish was the main spoken language. And at the gatherings, at the salons held in Ottoman lands uh, before the conquest, it was really Turkish that was the lingua franca, and it was Turkish poetry that was um, that was recited. Um, and and in in Mamluk lands, we also have a Turkophone elite, but among the um, let's say Arab 
um, uh, scholars and even many of the of the sort of Turkish speaking um, scholars of, of of the Mamluk Empire, it was really Arabic that was the primary, let's say, language of refined discourse. The two societies also had slightly different intellectual priorities. So, in fact, um, some of their their interests legally and um, and and in terms of of literature was was actually quite divergent. And so, these um, these differences, which made to look look to us sort of um, as cosmetic differences, they were they actually had had you know really really serious consequences for the way in which these two groups were then able to. Um, to meet and interact with one another uh, within within salons. Well, this is a great segue to my next question, which is what exactly um, was a what was a salon in in the Ottoman context? I mean, I think we we kind of I think you even admit in your introduction that that you're kind of borrowing the French word um, for this. Uh, but I guess kind of what I, I guess what exactly was one of these gatherings in the in the Ottoman context? Right. So, I mean, you know, in some ways, that's what the whole book is about. The whole book is about is an attempt, I think, to define what the Ottoman Salon is, and in part, uh, precisely because of the point you're making, which is that it's a term borrowed from the French 18th century context. And in in adopting it for the for the Ottoman context, I don't want to say, you know, Ottoman Salons are exactly like French Salons. Um, Rather, I want to sort of uh, introduce that term so that we can have the sort of possibility of comparing uh, elite intellectual social uh, cultures. Um, but I, I'm really keen to sort of define what that means in in the Ottoman context and all of the ways in which that might be similar to French salon, but also French salons, but also all of the ways in which that was very different from, from the French case. So to give a sort of the short definition that I give at the beginning of the book, um, I define them as exclusive exclusive gatherings held for the purpose of enlightened conversation and structured around the relationship between host and guest. So those are the sort of pillars of, of the of, of my definition. Um, but just to sort of sketch out that that scene, I guess, you can you can really imagine that all across the Ottoman Empire, um, especially in urban centers, um, elites, Ottoman gentlemen would host one another in their homes, um, sometimes in their gardens, sometimes in actually publicly accessible locations, so in in mosques or in storefronts. And um, and you know these these men actually invested quite a bit of energy in in making these reception areas in in their homes um, quite elaborate and 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 beautiful. So so these reception areas were an opportunity for for these men to sort of display their their good taste, um, their aesthetic sensibility, um, and their wealth, of course. And the same thing was true for guests who arrived. So a lot of attention is paid in the descriptions that I looked at um, to what people wore, um, how they wore their turbans, how they wrapped their turbans, um, what kind of furs they wore to these occasions. So these really were chances to sort of see and, and be seen. Some of these gatherings were held on a sort of regular basis, you know, every Thursday evening, for example. Um, others were held on, on sort of special occasions uh, to celebrate uh, the arrival of a, of a judge 
an Ottoman official or a judge to a, to a, um, to a particular city or to celebrate the graduation of a cohort of students. Um, food was often served, so they were often um, flanked by banquets, um, drink, Sometimes wine was was served, was enjoyed by by many Ottoman elites, though not all of them. Um, there was sometimes music and sometimes dance. So so there was there were it was a sort of sensory explosion. Um, but I would say the main event and sort of what what I as as, as you've already heard um, see put a sort of front and center um, of these gatherings is really conversation. And I think conversation was the main. Um, uh, function, goal, and the sort of art to be cultivated on, on these gatherings, uh, in these gatherings. And the topics of conversation ranged very, very widely. So people would tell personal anecdotes about like, you know, when they stopped drinking and why, um, uh, or they would, they would have very high level uh, intellectual conversations, um, scholarly debates, they would present um, their own, their recent, you know, works, and um, they would read aloud from works of scholarly of, of Quranic exegesis. So we're not just talking about sort of literary works, but very serious scholarly works as well. But regardless of what was being discussed, there was an incredibly high standard of conversation and of verbal expression. So it was really expected that no matter what the topic was, men would be eloquent. They would be, um, they would be able to sort of pepper their discourse with interesting anecdotes and stories with references to literature and above all um, with poetry um, and so poetry really was one of the most important aspects of salon conversation and it's interesting in fact if you if you look at the written record from the early modern period um, this is in the ottoman empire but in many many surrounding islamic societies as well we find lots, we find prose works interspersed with lots and lots of poetic citations. And modern readers, I think, often skip over these. Um, but but for contemporaries, these, these poems were actually hugely significant. And I think that actually the written record there really mirrors um, patterns of speech or ideals of, of, of speech um, as well. So, so, so that's, that sort of gives you a sense for, for maybe what, um, what Salon's looked, felt, and, and, and smelt like. So one of the kind of anchors for your book is, is the life of, and forgive me if I don't pronounce the name entirely properly, um, Badr al-Din al-Ghazi, um, you know, this kind of famed scholar, you know, but why make him one of the centerpieces for your book? Yeah, I mean, um, Ghazi, Badr al-Din al-Ghazi was, um, you know, he, he was certainly without without a doubt one of the foremost intellectuals of 16th century damascus um so locally he acted as a as a mufti which means that he issued um legal opinions he acted as an imam he was a very sort of uh, let's say revered and, and visible member of the local community but he was he was above all a scholar and he was known for his works of quranic exegesis not just in damascus but really in cairo and in fact in in istanbul as well so um, uh, some of his manuscripts are to this day deposited in different parts of, of modern Turkey. Um, but he's, he hasn't really received a lot of attention. And I think that's, you know, in, 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 the, in the way that many other Ottoman scholars haven't received a lot of attention. And I think that's still because of a sort of residual 
um, maybe feeling, or rather a feeling that let's say was dominant in the 20th century, that that the Ottomans didn't produce that much um, sort of uh, intellectual contributions of, of note. And so that means that there are lots of very, very important scholars, contemporary scholars who, who we just don't know a lot about uh, today. Um, so, so I think just based on, I mean, this is not an intellectual history. It's, it's really not a, a close study of its, his works. It's really, it's a study of his sort of, um, his environment and his social context and, and his life and how that can sort of reflect on, on salons and on this interaction between Turkish and Arabic speakers. Um, but I, I do think he just by virtue of, of his importance um, and to contemporaries, I think is, is, is worth further study. Um, so I do hope that others will, will come along and, and, and subject his, his, um, his thought to, to, further, um, to further scrutiny. But for me, why was he interesting? Well, he was, he was born in, in 1499, so in the last years of the Mamluk Sultanate. Of course, he, nobody knew that at the time. Um, and he died in 1577 when you could say the Ottoman Empire was really one of the premier empires of early modern Afro-Eurasia. Um, the conquest occurred when he was a teenager, um, the conquest of, of uh, the Ottoman conquest of, of Mamluk lands. Um, uh, Damascus was conquered in 1516. Um, and so he seemed like a perfect sort of case study to see, OK, how does someone make the transition from this sort of old order to to the new order? And that's that's why I chose him. And, you know, um, just you know, to, to give a sort of sense, he did incredibly well. I mean, that's why, you know, obviously that's why I'm studying him. That's why he's, he, you know, he, he's well known or was well known in, in his time. And he did well, I think, uh, this is one of the arguments of the book, because of his ability to sort of navigate um, salon culture and, and to use salons or use informal gatherings to sort of build up a network of, of contacts and confidants not just in Damascus, but really extending all the way to, to Istanbul on the one hand and to, to Cairo on the other. And, and this was a process, this sort of networking, to use a, a, a terrible contemporary term, this networking really already happened under his father, who began to build up alliances with all of the Ottoman officials who, who passed through the cities, or even just all Ottoman scholars or Sufis who passed through the city. Um, through Damascus in in um, in the wake of the conquest, and um, his father invited him, uh, invited those individuals to his home. He um, built up relationships with them, and when he died um, in 1529, and Razi found himself out of a job, uh, the first thing Razi did was he he went to Istanbul to the Ottoman capital, and he actually interestingly enough met with a lot of those people that his father had already met with you know, years earlier in Damascus. Um, and, and so, you know, and, and he's able to capitalize on those networks and build up a set of, of I think, friendships. Um, uh, and, and establish trust, let's say, establish himself to Ottoman officials as a trustworthy individual capable of, let's say, um, having the teaching position that he was after. And, and it was this, you know, this set of networks and, and these sort of informal conversations that he had with all of these men in Istanbul, again, building on his father's work that allowed him to ultimately land the position 
that he wanted and go back sort of triumphant to Damascus and really sort of start off on, on a, a scholarly career or, or let's say take, let his scholarly career really truly take off. It, it had already started um, uh, quite a bit earlier. Um, and so over the rest of his lifetime, he cultivates very close relations with, um, with Turkish speaking Ottoman elites who pass through the city. And this was especially true for um, the very, the most high ranking of those individuals, people like um, chief judges who um, did not only have judicial um, duties, but also administrative ones. They were very, very powerful locally and governors, um, uh, the highest ranking um, members of the of the provincial hierarchy, and and he has relationships, very close relationships with these friendships with them. But what's also very very interesting is is that he actually um, uh, taught a number of them as well. So so he he is good, I think, for for both um, shedding light on these social interactions, but also on the sort of intellectual relationships between um, Arabic speakers and, and Turkish speakers. So I want to take a step back again and kind of get at something you mentioned earlier on in the in the um, in our conversation, which is um, you 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 kind of have this difference in I'm going to use the word prestige, let's say between um, the Arab community and the Rumi community. Um, you know the, the the Rumis are kind of their 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 upstarts. Uh, they have military and political power, but they don't have cultural power, whereas the Arabs have cultural power. How did these dynamics play out in the salon? How was the salon then become a vehicle for transfer of cultural power, transfer of knowledge, um, this cultural interaction? Um, I, I, I guess how did the salon kind of then express these differences in in cultural power dynamics? Let's say. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I that's that's it's it's interesting, and that's the sort of I think key key interest of 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 the book, and I think maybe you know coming from a, a modern um, perspective, one might expect that the sort of Turkish speaking imperial elite just sort of parades into salons and then you know establishes their dominance and you know over and despite the local sort of community, right? That's that's the story that I think has that maybe we've inherited but has become much more complex. But when we think of maybe the British in India um, or the French in 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 parts of Africa, etc. Um, and I should say actually there is an element of that. Um, so, so the power, the the power of appointment, the power of patronage, the power of, of you know, removing someone from a particular position, this kind of real brute uh, power, uh, does does actually transfer into the salon and does give them a special status in the salon. It means they often acted as hosts, which was seen by contemporaries as a as a um, as a privilege. And that, of course, brings with them a number of, of privileges, right? They sit in the seat of, of honor. They um, could set the terms of the conversation. They decide where, in, in some cases, where all of their guests sit. So that gives them really a, a, a substantial amount of power over the social dynamics um, within within uh, within these gatherings. They also use the salon very much to sort of perform their power in front of audiences. So because they had a lot of you know money, um, patronage, uh, positions and commissions to award, they would use salons often to sort of um, uh, 
award a commission to a particular, let's say, witty or clever or intelligent um, scholar or poet, and to, in some cases, even to withdraw positions from others who who were not there at the, on that day or who had had performed more poorly. So these were, you know, these these very much, you know, that that kind of power that you've talked about that 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 political power does absolutely matter. But that being said, yeah, as you say, I mean, Arab scholars too had a source of power. It was just a power that that was very different and that operated very differently. And that was one that, as you say, was derived from their knowledge, from their um, linguistic training, um, and from, in some cases, their sort of local um, expertise. Um, so language, you know, uh, their their mastery over of, of the Arabic language, I think, was 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 absolutely key. Was very very important, and I should say that that Turkish speakers, Rumis, as we can say, um, Rumis did study Arabic for years and years. They mastered Arabic, I'm sure, better than than I have. They were they were brilliant. Um, uh, often writers of Arabic as well. It was just that they hadn't cultivated in, in, in salons, they usually did not cultivate, at least from their, from their youth, Arabic as a spoken language and as a language of, um, of these kind of elaborate verbal performances that um, were important in, in the salon. Um, and so, so, yeah, as a result, um, you know that that means that they often appeared less less sort of eloquent and, and potentially less learned because they had maybe a huge repertoire of Turkish poetry on which to draw and maybe a slightly smaller repertoire of Arabic poetry on which to draw. And in Arabic language gatherings with Arab scholars, of course, um, their learning wasn't able to let's say um, uh, didn't sparkle. Um, or, or um, uh, let's say, receive maybe the appreciation that it would have in, in Turkish language language circles. And I, I, I want to state, you know, very clearly that there were plenty of Ottoman scholars who were incredibly learned, um, who had written, you know, very important and and um, valuable treatises on on you know many many different topics. Um, but that was but. That was not always appreciated by by Arab scholars, um, and so I think in in this sort of constellation, um, you know, uh, Ottoman elites, Ottoman officials often often struggled to to um, articulate themselves and and to sort of. Um, uh, yeah, get the the appreciation, the cultural and and maybe intellectual um, recognition that I think they they desired and that that certainly they deserved. So to me, that's the sort of most interesting thing about the Ottoman salon is is seeing how all of these different forms of power interact. And I think this is something that we know from our own world, from our own social interactions as well, right? There are many different sorts, forms of power that exist in any given interaction, right? Um, that, that which comes through um, one's profession, one's age, one's, one's gender, um, 
one's wealth, but also one's education or one's one's uh, language and ability to articulate oneself. And seeing how all of those different forms of, of power interact in the salon, I think I think is 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 absolutely fascinating. And that's sort of I think the the real beating heart of the of the book for me. And, and you know, like now that we're talking about it, I mean, I'm I'm drawing so many parallels with um, I mean, times times that this has happened throughout history times when it happens now you know i'm the parallels i'm drawing are um are with china where you know um the mongols or the manchus would take over china and then immediately try to emulate everything the 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 chinese did because they had the cultural prestige another example maybe uh is our um americans and europeans (laughs) um with the u.s americans would come in and try to adopt all the all the european uh cultural practices because again europe had the cultural prestige you know and and one thing one thing you kind of get at near the end of your book is that there was a point where the prestige flips where suddenly it's 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 the roomy participants who have maybe not power maybe i'm using power maybe it's the wrong term but suddenly the room participants had much more prestige much more ability for patronage um than their arab counterparts kind of how how does that i guess reversal happen yeah i mean i I appreciate all of those those kinds of of uh comparisons and every time i i present my work somebody you know gives me a new a new um a new sort of comparative frame to think about um, Romans and Greeks being being potentially another one that, that comes up a lot. And I, as an American who I teach at a, at a UK university, um, I can appreciate how, how complicated those kinds of things are. You know, my um, uh, uh, there is still a certain for for I think a, an American there is still a certain sort of cachet in, in the sort of British accent. Um, so so yeah, I'm, I I I think um, those things are, are certainly recognizable and and have existed throughout history. And and I think it would be it would be lovely to to think about that in a in a in a more sustained way. Um, but yeah, as for this question of 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 when this sort of Maybe this asymmetry, this sort of cultural asymmetry, begins to to um, to to recalibrate. Um, yeah, I mean, already, you know, by the time that 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 Razi dies in 1577, things really look very, very different. So he really was born into a very different world um, the, than than the um, the world he he died in, and and you know, the Ottoman Empire has basically become. Uh, you know, without a doubt, one of the most powerful um, empires um, in in the Mediterranean, and and of course that kind of uh, political military power also means wealth. It also means a sort of state backing of cultural projects that obviously gives those cultural projects new visibility and new new importance. There has, by the time he dies, also been decades of um, of work. I mean, actually centuries, but but let's say decades of intensified work on Turkish language literature. So so by you know by by the last quarter of, of the the sixteenth century, probably also already already you know well before that, um, there is no longer any doubt that Turkish is a prestige language, that is a serious literary language, a cosmopolitan language, in fact, one shared among all of the the, the courts um, of, of Eurasia, or many of the courts of, of Eurasia. There are now dozens of madrasas um, in, in Istanbul, which really make Istanbul the intellectual 
uh, uh, center of, of the era. And of course, Arabic, I mean, we only have to look around our world today to know that Arabic never loses its prestige. It, it was a sacred language and will always be, I think, considered one. Um, and, you know, Cairo always has a certain cachet to the 19th and, and 20th centuries um, uh, intellectually and, and culturally. But yes, we do start to see a sort of reversal. And, and it's, you know, by, by that point, it's really the sort of Turkish language salons at the imperial center that are sort of where it's at culturally, politically. It's where culture is made, is where it's where uh, commissions are, are given, where patronage takes place. And it's really now, I think, in, to a greater extent than it was when, when Ghazi went to Istanbul in the 1530s, it's really Arabs, along with a number of other, let's say, Turkish-speaking provincial elites from, from places outside of Istanbul, who try to gain access to these salons in an attempt to have a piece of the sort of pie and a piece of the wealth. Um, and, and so more and more there's the expectation that actually Arab scholars would would learn Turkish as well. And more and more, interestingly enough, we also have um, Arab scholars who are going to study in Istanbul for a few years. That really became sort of de rigueur for, um, for let's say, aspiring Arab scholars. So yeah, but, you know, by the end of, by, by, by the last quarter of the, the 16th century, things really, really have, have changed. And in part, you know, I, I think in part, it's because of the interactions that took place in the salon. In part, you know, you could say that, um, that Arab elites are sort of the victims of their own success. They have used those salons to, as I show in, in various different chapters, to teach um, um, Ottoman scholars to informally sort of pass books and knowledge um, to them. And, and by that period, um, Rumi's Turkish language scholars had just... Um, I mean, it was an ongoing process, but they had really made a lot of that literature to their own. There had been a huge number of translations from Arabic in, into Turkish. And, and that left sort of Turkish culture, or let's say Turkophone Ottoman culture, transformed. Um, and yeah, um, yeah, and, and, and really, really, you know, uh, res- represents a, a, a huge, huge transformation and, and suggests really the extent to which I think um, Turkish, uh, what, what we consider today as sort of Turkish and Arabic uh, cultures uh, suggest the, uh, the way, the, the extent to which these were sort of intertwined and, and built in response to one another um, uh, over, the, over the course of many centuries. Well, let's maybe kind of end our conversation with with maybe this kind of final question, which is, can you still see strains of of this salon culture, strains of this cultural interaction in the Middle East today? I mean, obviously it's been it's been centuries since, well, I think probably just over a century since the Ottoman Empire fell apart. Um, we are centuries removed from some of these um, interactions from these salons, but can you still see strains of this today or is it just we're in just a new different era of culture in the Middle East? Yeah, you know, it's it's so interesting. And and um, whenever I, I give give talks on, on this material, um, 
people from from the Arab world, um, sometimes from from Iran, um, uh, to a lesser extent from from Turkey. But but I think you know they always come up to me and say, "Wow, you know this culture, this sort of." conversation culture, this culture of citation, of reciting poetry, this is something that I know from my youth or from my grandfather or for, from, um, you know, uh, or, or, or from sort of contemporary literary circles. And I think those circles still do exist um, in uh, circles of, of gentlemen, of, of very, very well-educated, eloquent um, um Men, sometimes, sometimes uh, uh, women to a lesser extent, who sort of uh, you know revel in in the the written word and the spoken word, and and I think cultivate actually a very similar sort of culture as as the one that that I describe in this book. So I I I do think it it exists. I've even um, you know thought about in in Turkey there are all these ex- extremely long for American standards really really long sort of talk shows where people talk about history and politics and and you know sometimes I wonder whether that sort of sits flash that ability to sit for hours and and talk and to also just enjoy the the, the spoken word to that extent whether that is a sort of remnant of of this this um, this culture, you know. That being said, I do think it it matters that the salon, that, that those kinds of sort of poetic, um, literary uh, pursuits were then separated out from from the sort of political pursuits that that I think existed side by side in in the salon context. Um, uh, so I think you know that that culture really has transformed. But I do think, yeah, I think there are remnants of it um, uh, in, in the Middle East still today. So I think with that, thank you for our interview with Helen Pfeiffer, author of Empire Salons, Conquest and Community in Early Modern Ottoman Lands. Helen, I actually have two more questions for you before we end. Um, and they are, uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you? Uh, interesting. Okay, where can they find my work? I mean, the the book was published by um, Princeton University Press. Um, so, uh, but it's also available on on Amazon, um, and um, yeah, people. There's a, there's a variety of different outlets where they can they can order it. Hopefully, some bookstores will be will be displaying the book as well. Um, as for my next project, I am. Uh, I think I'm going to move from cross-cultural interactions to cross-species interactions. So I'm planning on writing a history of sort of um, human-animal interactions in the Ottoman Empire and Ottoman cities uh, in the early modern period. So stay tuned for that. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I would love to read that when the time comes. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianFoodBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The Airbnb Podcast is on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want to support us, can you interview those writing in, around, and about Asia? Next week, join us for an interview with Anna Ju, author of Rosewood, Endangered Species Conservation and the Rise of Global China. But before then, thank you so much, Helen, for joining me today. 
Thanks. It was a real pleasure talking to you.